Welcome, Sam and Jody. Your film, Sam, is a really important one, and I believe historically these sorts of films will become crucial when we look back at what's gone on in New Zealand in the last three years. What did you want to achieve in this film, and did you achieve it? Oh, I think we'll see if I've achieved it, and the, <clears throat> the intention and the desire has morphed and evolved, but there is a core, there is a core and under, there's been a few core and underlying mantras. Uh, one of them is reasonable Kiwis with reasonable questions, reasonable people living here in New Zealand with reasonable questions. Um, and not just reasonable, but educated, really reasonable, sensible people with sensible questions. Because what I've seen is the opposite of that being painted by our mainstream media. What I've seen is that these people are being painted as dangerous or crazy via people who don't, aren't, aren't seeking the depth of what we're asking here. And I have seen New Zealand in a state unlike I've seen in my entire life. There is a great need for healing and a great need for understanding from a side of the coin that has not had the space to be expressed. So I wanted to bring some balance and show again that we are reasonable Kiwis asking reasonable questions. And some of them are really good questions and some of them are very legitimate. In fact, many of them are very legitimate. And just because they can't be answered or won't be answered, that doesn't delegitimate the questions. Um, yeah, there's another part to it is, you know, we've been so fractured, this divide and in information started like this, but unfortunately it's continued like this. So this documentary seeks to bring it back to here. And this divide, and I kind of thought, where, where, where did we divide? Where is, where do we come back to unity? And the answer that came through for me was, we all need to unite for freedom of speech, whether you're pro-vax or anti-vax or any of these ways that we've been divided. The bedrock of democracy is freedom of speech, and we must be allowed to hear all of the sides if we're to make a proper opinion, then we still need to be able to hear all of the sides, the sides to be fully informed in order to make a well-informed, properly informed opinion. And it seems to me that in many cases, this has not been allowed to happen. So this project was me trying to draw it back to the point where we became divided and where we can find unity again, which is in freedom of speech, which is in upholding this bedrock of our democracy and hearing out all of the sides. And what I kind of hope is that now looking back a little bit with the, with the chance to look back on things, having removed ourselves a little bit from the thick of it of what was our pandemic response, maybe there's hopefully space enough for us to be able to hear the other side this particular side of the story and these particular points. Maybe there is the space for these questions to be aired, hopefully answered, but we'll see. 
We will examine the actual makeup of the film in a moment, but that was an extraordinary answer. It's extraordinary because so many Kiwis feel like this, Sam. Mm. If, if I were in government, I would almost immediately appoint you the head of TVNZ. <laughs> and we would clean. And seriously, we need a whole new generation to say the most sacred thing we can have is freedom of speech and the nurturing of critical thinking, being able to question ask sensible questions. Jody. before we get into the analytics of the film, what first impressed you about Sam? Because my God, her answer just now has, has really quite nailed it. And I think will for many Kiwis. But what made you want to be part of this film, Jodie? Well, I, well, Sam approached me and I was very cautious because I am aware that there's a lot of media that is helping people that were outsiders um understand what has happened and how it's happened and it's been and and a lot of that media has been framed in such a way that helps people that were mandated for example and um and and I guess vaccine injured it's it's they were out they, they've been outside and they haven't been heard so a lot of the media coming out addresses their frustration their anger their sadness and they're, they're very emotional and so when Sam approached me I didn't know her she'd been following me on Substack I think you and um and so I was I was sort of taking a step back and saying look I'm not going to be involved in this unless it's helping people understand and because I didn't know her I'd had no concept of where she was coming from. So she sort of had to gently explain to me the, the, the framing, how it would how it would work, who was involved. So I was really cautious. So when she explained that to me, um, that was when I was able to say, okay, okay, I'm a little bit anxious because I haven't done this, you know, been the subject or participated in this sort of process before, but that, but that sounds great. So, so you know, it, it took a little while um, and I was very direct sometimes because I just didn't want big generalised angry comments um, because I, I, to be honest, my own family and friends have steered clear from anything, any discussion, and I've seen what happens on Twitter. So I understand that we really need to look at how we communicate and the, the depth of information. And, and the, what I've seen from what Sam has done is is exceptional. So I'm I'm really excited to be part of this. That's really crucial, Sam. This is not about any ideology. You are that that archetype of what the sacred... Uh, journalists should be really, which is I'm willing to listen to all sides. I'm willing to keep come to this material with an open mind. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, none of us have been able to avoid the constant stream of so much mainstream media um, and advertising, which the documentary looks at. Um, in terms of the COVID narrative. And uh, what we are presenting here, some of the points that are presented in the documentary are what all of that covered up. There were other points, really good points, really good questions that should never have been overlooked. <laughs> Beautifully said. So before we analyze it, what is your own background so people understand where you come from in terms of training? 
Um, I studied at the New Zealand Broadcasting School with several of the faces that we see on TV nowadays, actually. Um, can, you name, was, can you name them? Can you name yeah. any? Um, well, I think one of the most successful, he was a year ahead of me, but Jack Tame was a year ahead of me. And, you know, I admire him in so many ways. But, um, you know, who else have we got? Um, more recently, Anna Burns Francis was in my year and a friend of mine at school, although I haven't spoken for a long time. She's on breakfast now. Um, and there are others. Hmm. Um, and, and what did you think of the training during your time in there? Did you feel, the, as, as someone with a naturally, uh, natural aptitude towards critical thinking, did you feel there is a certain amount of programming? Was, was, um, was, there, was there that doubt in your mind? And I ask that because someone very close to me dropped out of university in an arts degree, telling me, uh, I can't do this. It feels like I'm jumping through hoops that are expected, that are preset, that I have to regurgitate certain material, that questioning is not welcomed. And that has really concerned me. That was in the last three years. I didn't, I think I've, I didn't notice that in my degree. I was young. Um, but I left the industry. So I worked it for Radio Live as the South Island reporter for three years following on from my journalism degree. And, um, and I walked away from that job for several reasons, but one of them was a feeling and, 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 and it was more of an intuition. I, I've thought about this a lot lately and I can't pinpoint, pinpoint why I used to say this, but I didn't like the way that it was controlled. And uh, for example, <clears throat> When I arrived at Radio Live in Auckland, which became Magic FM, which became Today FM, when I arrived, there was this um, area of the interface that we used to put stories together and file them where the wires came through. And this was where we had the input of uh, police and uh, government press releases and various things like this, but also Reuters came through the wires. And it was obviously a paid arrangement where we could just pay them for international stories and we would just rip them straight out of there and just whack them in. There was no verification. And I remember thinking that was a bit funny because I'd been trained to verify everything, yeah, but we were paying a company, which is, it's Reuters, you know, it is or was reputable. <laughs> um, but I, I remember feeling that that was a wee bit strange. We don't verify what, what, they do it just comes through it's like gospel now one of the turning points for me in the last couple of years and one of the the mind-blowing moments as I started to research and and re-engage with my old journalism skills was finding out that the CEO of Thomson Reuters also sat on the board of Pfizer his name's Jim Smith it's not the case anymore He's moved on, and it's actually quite hard to find this. There was a period running into 2020 where he was not only CEO, but also chairman of the board of Reuters, this mothership of news worldwide, and he's also sitting on the board of Pfizer. I mean, I that, that stuck with me for, uh, still sticks with me. And this is who our news agencies are looking to for international news without question. But that deserves questioning. That is really interesting. Jodie, your reaction to that, hearing that? 
Well, some things stay the same while everything else changes around it. So Reuters, you know, 30 years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm not that clear on when it, it first evolved, would have been an independent institution. But the, the mergers and the consolidations, the massive the, the, the business model of the political economy of, of the media has changed profoundly. So for the public looking at their screens, nothing has changed. But behind the scenes, everything has changed. And we are recording this on Good Friday morning. Tonight the film will debut. And I woke up to my news feeds this morning showing the French have invaded the headquarters of BlackRock in Paris, which is extraordinary. <laughs> Wow. It's extraordinary because the people are now through their own intelligence, questioning mind, Sam, and determination not to be oppressed by the very few at the top have worked out that most world media sources back to BlackRock and Vanguard. And that is where these edicts come from. This will be the world news and this is what you will do. So that's a very crucial observation you made of uh, Stories coming in through Reuters and simply being regurgitated instead of being examined, questioned, discussed in the newsroom, debated, and other perspectives. Sam, let's get into the analytics of the way you presented this film. When you first came up with the idea, what was it? What was its seed? Where did it come from? Um, <clears throat> um, that mantra comes back to me, reasonable Kiwis with reasonable questions. Um, so how did you choose? Of, how did you choose them? Um, I looked at where these questions had been silenced. <laughs> the name of the film. In media, in medicine, and in academia. And I thought it would be great to get a representative from each of these realms to speak to the silencing that had happened within those realms. And in fact, the seed, the seed was uh, undefined in the beginning. I just knew that I had to make something and I just started and trusted the process. And let me tell you, it was beautiful. And I'll tell you a part of it. Part of one of the seeds, you might say, was, uh, was Peter Williams and his story. Initially, I was interviewing him about Three Waters because his work on that front has been incredible. But I couldn't wait to ask him why he left Today FM. And he told me, and the story wasn't out there. And I thought this needs to be caught on camera. So I emailed him and I proposed this idea, you know, never made a documentary before, but I want to try. And <laughs> I think your story is great. And let's give it a, a will. He phoned me two days later when it should have been me following this up. He phoned me and he said, Sam, I'm not very enthousi enthusiastic about your idea. And I said, I was just thinking, how do I get you to be enthusiastic? And he said, but I'm in Golden Bay. It's where I live. And I said, well, <laughs> how long are you here for? And, um, you know, he was all the way here from all the way down south. And I just thought, if I can get things together in the next few hours, would you come and do an interview tomorrow? And he said that he would. And I just thought, okay, we're on. Let's do it. And, uh, and from there it developed. I'd also already interviewed Anne O'Reilly after the protest. She's the GP that represents medicine. And then as the ball rolled along, I thought, I really want to interview Simon Thornley, the epidemiologist from Auckland University. 
because in my eyes, he was one of the first brazen voices and he had gone quiet. And so I did manage not, to... Not just brazen, Sam. He was so hammered. He was so silenced. He was so bullied. We all saw it before we many of us realised how serious the whole COVID rollout situation was in terms of silencing alternate voices. It was horrendous to see what happened to Simon Thornley. Yeah, yeah. And I managed to interview him under embargo. So as long as when, when he would become comfortable with releasing that interview, I would be allowed to make the documentary. So I waited and wait, waited for a few months and I could feel it coming actually a week or so before he told me that his lawyers had advised him that we were not allowed to use that. And that week prior to that phone call, I was thinking I'd, I'd been become familiar with Jody's work. And even before that call, I had soothed myself that if we didn't get Dr. Thornley, then I could go to Jody. And Jody and I hadn't spoken yet. I had tried to um, get in touch with her for some other work that I do, but it wasn't the right work. This was the work. And interestingly, when I finally did get in touch with Jody um, for this project, initially she said, Oh, you know who you, should, who you should speak to? She said, You should speak to Dr. Thornley. You should speak to Simon Thornley. And I said, Well, you know what, Jody, I've tried. I have. And in fact, the fact that we can't use Dr. Thornley's reflections at this point as an epidemiologist with this huge body of work on COVID plan B, which so where so much of it was so on the button for anyone who wants to go back and read that. The fact that we can't speak to him at this point, even in hindsight, is deeply concerning. But I got to speak to Jody. <laughs> And in my view, she's uh, a star of the of, of the doco. So no, really please. <laughs> no, I'm so pleased, Jody. Sam, you. that whole arc is very moving. I got goosebumps when you talked about Peter because he did remain resolutely silent on the silencing of him at Magic Talk, and mm. this this will intrigue many many Kiwis. Jody, what did you feel at the heart of your message was what you wanted to say on this film? What wanted to convey? Well, I firstly, I just want to respond to, I, I was just looking at a paper yesterday that, that Thornley Sunborn et al. had released talking about um, targeted, um, a targeted response to COVID. And, and then I was looking at the media on that. So, you know, um, Baker was calling it patently absurd. <laughs> you know, the fact that he could just say, you know, make these accusations. I'm fairly sure it was Michael Baker saying patently absurd. Um, anyway, so I wanted people to understand the normality, I guess, of this, you know, because I, in my own, in my other world, which I, in that previous interview we've discussed, I had tried to get information in the media talking about glyphosate, talking about the institutions that haven't been conducting, you know, what I would call adequate scrutiny of the literature of the science to understand risk. And I just couldn't get any traction in the mainstream media. So when COVID came with this, you know, this new technology that inscribed, that, that contained the instructions for the body to reproduce a spike protein, I fairly much understood that there was no way in hell that they were going to publish any op-ed or letter from me. 
I just, I, I knew this was the case. So I wasn't, I didn't have to go through all that anger and all that. I can't believe they're not telling the story because I, I understood this would be the process. So as part of sort of my um, master's um, in sociology, we looked at ignorance studies. We looked at the role of ignorance. So if the public don't understand the the, the evidence that demonstrates risk and harm, lack of efficacy, um, you know, even having a nuanced discussion around, for example, pregnant women and the fact that normally modern, modern or novel medi medication will stay away from pregnant women, from young people, because we know if young people are injured, they've got a much longer sort of they'll be harmed for longer and basically cost the system more. So there's always been massive caution around pregnant women and young people. And this all disappeared with this brand new novel technology that people really didn't understand. There's maybe one article in the media talking about the complexity of this technology, but, it, but there was never anything talking about risk. But that, that same article, um, and admitted that it's never been released in, in the past, you know, that it was absolutely novel. So I wanted to help normalise this and normalise the difficulty and the barriers for scientists or, you know, um, doctors or the media or, or people that sought in the media to put forward a critical context, a nuanced context, and, and an ethical context, remembering that there was never, ever a bioethics committee convened to talk about these issues. You know, the, the entire process, and I've written about it, you know, red flags and loopholes, that's, that's how it's got through and all the ethical kind of infrastructure that I think the public think is there, is sitting there, that was pushed aside and it was ignored to, to get this job done, remembering that they've purchased enough of this technology in 2020 before they even risk assessed it or did any clinical evaluation they'd purchased it so everything then that was a predetermined strategy because they purchased enough for the whole population so then everything followed from that on so so you know the, the thought of me being interviewed by someone on rnz right now to discuss this can you can you think about how impossible that is mm. That is, that is also very profound. And not only did they not look at those, but they pasted over the top with this ghastly phrase that we heard repeated like a psyop, like a, a sort of form of hypnosis, safe and effective, safe yeah. and effective every single day in every ad, as you referred to, Sam. We had this, this dearth of proper research work. We had the silencing and then we had the propaganda, didn't we, Sam? Mm. Yeah. How, how could human beings really step back and the hysteria and fear being put on us of something that, you know, we could walk out of the house and keel over and die immediately? And how could we step back? Yeah. And can I just say right now I've got Official Information Act requests with the ministries asking where is, where is the time where MedSafe, where the Ministry of Health, so we know MedSafe is within the Ministry of Health, this is one of the problems. So we have... How can MedSafe, MedSafe stay, in, you know, um, say stay independent if it's inside the Ministry of Health? And before COVID, MedSafe used to have separate information. Official Information Act requests would go straight to MedSafe. At about the time of COVID, in about 2019, 2020, MedSafe, you have to do an Official Information Act request through the Ministry of Health. 
So we have obfuscation in that way as well. So I've got an, I'm, I'm trying right now because the clinical evaluation didn't say that. Um, I didn't see Pharmac saying that once. So I've asked those questions on my sub, sub stack. Where did you ever say it was safe and effective? Because I don't, I don't believe they ever did. There's a there's a point with MedSafe. I just as an aside, Jody, I'd like you to keep an eye on this. Since Baby Will, I was saying during the Baby Will case, there were nearly sixty five thousand jab injured, officially registered Kiwis on the MedSafe site. I'm really concerned now. Months later, that was in December. Now in March, that number has barely moved, and I know there are more and more injured in this country. So are the numbers in MedSafe now being frozen? That has the ticker been turned off? Has the due diligence, even on that minimal, which we think might be, be between 1% and 5% of mm -hmm. the actual injured being stopped? If you could watch that, I would really appreciate that. Well, who really can? Concerned. You know, this is opaque. This is, this is we have sort of an unaccountable um, Ministry of Health um, that really don't want to answer these questions. And the minute you ask a, a, a complex question, they say refine it, refine it, and then it becomes meaningless. Um, and, and they're refusing to to you know, I was trying to say, you know, what about their back end? What about your email conversations? So I've seen at the start there were was some release of that stuff, but now it's like, oh, we're really only going to release official documents. We're not going to release conversations between staff, whether they're on WhatsApp or, you know, their private email or their ministry email or their, you know, if it's elected members, is it simply the institutional, you know, is it the parliamentary email or is it the Labor email? So we've got all these problems where there's not a type, they're not, com they're not compulsory. They're able to navigate around, you know, so much of this. So we, and, and if official information, if official information act requests are the centre of democracy, if they're not working, we actually, we're a, bit, we're a bit stuffed, actually. And that is why that aside, Sam, is so relevant to your film, because in a way it could have been called silenced and obfuscated out of existence. There's this obfuscation, there's this intentional blocking of valid questions. This is at the heart of this crucial film you're putting out tonight, hmm. isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The general, um, I'm not a big OAA requester. I never have been. I've done a few over the last few years, but it's become the general energy of having to do it is so I know that I'm not going to get the answer. Like I, I do it and I do it as best as I can and it, and, it, and they just beat you back and beat you back. And we, we saw it come out with um, Gaurav Sharma and, and um, the allegations around that, that they're aware of it. They're aware that it's not working like it should. But there's obviously reasons why um, why they, they, they don't want it to be working like it should. But you're so right. It is central to our democracy. It's how we ask questions of authority. And um, I think it's so important that we are able to, we must be able to. And uh, this is it's just... Unfortunately, this is yes being obfuscated by OIA, by the OIA process or um, sidestepped around, beaten around the bush. You go to the ombudsman, and it sort of seems to continue. You've got journalists who aren't even doing that work. You've got all these subtle ways of of silencing and censorship around this issue. Um, you know, people are leaving their jobs before they are able to get questions. They're leaving their jobs because they can't get questions. There's, I think the, the documentary shows that there are several ways that this is happening. It's very subtle. 
And this is why the public are not actually aware of it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I have a 23, a mother of a 23-year-old who can't even get a coroner's report about his jab death cannot even get that basic basic human human needs and this is where that i refer to it as a sacred profession journalism sam this is where the journalists should be holding power to account so tell us take us in to peter's story what most struck you about the way he shared and trusted you to tell his story mm -hmm. um <sighs> I mean, that's synchronicity to start with, that he just happened to be where I live when I needed to, when I wanted to interview him. And then, um, yes, his willingness to come forward and, and to trust me. I think that, oh, you know what? It was this beautiful um, integrity was something that I ruminated a lot on last year. Um, and I think what Peter and I both saw in each other fairly instantly, even though we'd never met before, was integrity. Um and we both commented, commented on it during that interview and later, and he mentions it in his program. He had to stay true to himself. And this is something that many of us are harking toward, even when we're being told from outside influences, you must do this and you must do that. Mm, I can I feel think, that something's wrong here. I think Sam is more than that. You know, you were you you very. He was very clear that I because I of course never have never met him. I've only seen him through the documentary. He was very clear that he, as a as a journalist of some forty eight years, was yes, correct was was used to both sides of the story. He was used to covering both sides of the story. He wasn't used to being silenced. So he was astonished, and he was. You know, see, he, he had this integrity, but this it's it's sort of principles. So when you, it's the principles of journalism that he had been holding that was should be non-controversial. It should be non-controversial that Williams would cover both sides of the story, and mm -hmm. he he was sort of he was sort of um, he saw the ethical and moral problem, and he chose to keep moving in the way he had always presented himself. He didn't change. It was what changed around him. Yeah, exactly. And also that's what the public wanted to talk about. He was a talkback host. People were calling in. This is He quit his job. He resigned three months before the mandates came in. Everyone was talking about it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Talkback is a, is a marvellous platform for, for to be a public forum of that conversation. and. It needs to be open. It must be open. It can't be steered in one direction, but that's what Peter's faced. And I think it's remarkable that, um, that it really adds to his story that it was in his 49th year of broadcasting for the mainstream media that that would happen, that he'd have to walk out just shy of 50. Um, but it didn't matter. You know, these principles, as you say, Jody, were but they're paramount and they absolutely need to be upheld. But that to me comes back to integrity again. I just think, what a legend! <laughs> and and what was beautiful about it also was the way he walked and he stayed silent. He allowed he allowed us to each of us to think, why would a man like that walk away? There must be something so dark happening in the upper echelons of media. 
mm. for him to walk away and never look back, never even do an interview until now, until this film about mm. what happened there. There, there was something, and, and that wasn't PR spun. That was just his heart saying, I'm going to let people work this out, use their critical thinking. The message of his silence was so screaming, wasn't it, Sam? Wait, there is yeah. something wrong. The silence seemed to headline that. Yeah, and the suddenness yeah. with which he walked away as well. You know, he was he 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 was ousted just like that. No, you can go. No um, ceremony around his forty nine years. No warning. Just gone for all of these people that had found somewhere to go and be able to hear both sides of the story. People would have been tuning into his program because they were learning. Where where everywhere else they were just getting this same ream of story even though they probably had questions coming through at this point that weren't being answered and then they could look to Williams and go oh wow there's more to this and then that more to this was shut down at a very crucial point as well you know three months before Matt before uh, mandates really kicked in um yeah there were certain seminal moments that broke the hearts of Kiwis I think Simon Thornley was an early one for those of us who were already questioning. Then Peter, no voice, no no free media, what's going on? Then March the 2nd in the Freedom Village. And actually Albert Park has been one, but there are certain moments where Kiwis come together. I think Baby Will also was one. What on earth is going on in this country? Those moments where no matter whether you're jabbed or not, the, those stories brought us together with that question mark. Sam, is this a... Is this a film that those who decided to go around the jab route will will also feel includes them and helps them and and enables their families to have a better it's, life in the future? It's for it's everybody, isn't it? For them, yes, it's for them. I mean, so I mentioned this divide that's gone like this earlier, and um, it's a divide of information, obviously. So we have we have a very mainstream way of information, and we have what they call misinformation. Um, we have more information coming out, missing information, you might say. And what we've needed to do and what I've tried to do with this documentary is come back to where we were divided, those baseline questions, because there is so much information coming out now around the world. The truth really is coming out. New Zealand, unfortunately, is seems to be a little left behind, but New Zealand's always been a little bit behind in terms of fashion and all sorts of things. New Zealand is always, always a few years behind the rest of the world, honestly, or months at least. But it's no different here. But what I think we're going to find and what I'm worried about for people who haven't been introduced to this side of the information is that it's going to be shocking and very difficult to take and what this documentary tries to do is be quite a gentle introduction to the other side. Um, as well-rounded as I can make it, as whole as I can make it, as gentle as possible, and as credible and factual as I can, as I can truly, honestly make it. It's, it was very important, and Jodie and I spoke about this, that it was bulletproof, and it is. Um, it'd be useless to put it out there if, there was any holes to be poked in it so it can be trusted it's full of credible voices real voices with the credibility and qualifications and the stories that need to be told and it is an introduction 
um, an invitation really to understanding the other side of the story. And it's very much been born from my own, actually my own personal hardships that many of us have had with our own loved ones where the disparity of information is, has, has torn us from people that we love. And I made this for them really so that I could be like, here, look, please look at this with me and just see. There's some really good points that are made here. There's some really good questions that still need to be asked and we need public awareness of this to protect anything like this happening in the future, to protect from anything like this happening in the future. Public awareness is the opposite of ignorance, which Jody talks a lot about and which sociology talks about. We must be aware, we must be more aware. Um, and this documentary was made for people who sort of perhaps already understand a lot of this information to introduce to those who maybe are potentially, maybe they're, they're looking and they're wondering a little bit more now with, with that benefit of hindsight. They're like, okay, I can maybe look at it now or I don't understand still or I have these questions or maybe people are still embattled and they need to work towards some understanding to heal their relationships and this could help them. That would be a dream come true for me. That would be success in my eyes sam you just you just <laughs> you fill me with hope well you fill me with hope that there can be a new generation i have actually prayed for this that there can be a new generation of of young people who come up and i would include sesh nathan here mm. with the critical thinking with the intelligence with the courage the sensitivity, the love of their country to actually step up as a new generation of journalists. And I would put every last breath of my body into training or, you know, or helping mm. or, or nurturing mm. or, or funding that if I had the money, because that is what we need. Mm. With a powerful fourth estate, we can hold power to account, but the way you speak is so thoughtful and intelligent. I want to come to you, Jody, on her point of, as people awaken, this can be quite a traumatizing process. As a sociologist in society, we have to look at these. We lurched into this nightmare of propaganda and spin and bullying and coercion. We must now come out of it in, in, quite, a, in quite a nurturing way, not a lurching way, mustn't we? Yeah, it's, there's a few things I want to say to that, but when we look at technology, technology isn't some apolitical thing that is always in the public interest. You know, technology, you know, is produced by institutions for purpose, you know, and that we, we know we talk about the mergers and the, the, the you know, the, the conflicts of interest up here. So we need to be able to be critical about technology because we know that te technology will always be, you know, sort of, it's got the potential to be weaponized by powerful interests. And that's in the digital sphere, in the chemical sphere, in the medical sphere. So it's how we steward it. It's how we steward our fresh water. It's how we steward our children. So we've got to have those central points of conversation and not have, because when we have the polarization, that separation that Sam talks about, we can't come together and we can't look upstream at what you know, what the governors, what the what the administrators, what the media is saying, because we're so busy fighting. We're not able to look at the, the conflicts of interest behind the production of that technology. Now, it's a, quite a, an interesting thought that the first mothers that were seen as anti-vaxxers, um, I think that occurred in about the 1880s. 
So anti, the, the, the term anti-vax is a rhetorical device. It's, it's to other those people. And, we, and it's important to remember that when I looked at the data on who attended the Wellington protests, there were disproportionately more women than there are in the population. There were disproportionately more Maori. So this, there was very much an ethical basis to this that meant it was those groups that are often disenfranchised were far more represented at that. So who, is, who, is, who are bringing up these issues? Who are seeking to talk about them? So I'm, I'm really hoping this it's a one-hour documentary. It won't take your life to watch it. It's very conservative, helps to reduce that polarisation, stops us being all atomised around here and we, we start thinking of us as civil society looking at how do we steward technology and science for, for the public interest. It's beautifully said and a great example of that othering has been what happened at Albert Park. Interestingly, uh, a lot of people have contacted me to say they've put in chat G GBT, uh, what is a woman since the Chris Hipkins question and chat GBT is completely programmed with the gender ideology. So we have to treat the information we get from these machines with the same critical thinking, Sam, that we treat everything else, that we treat a prime minister who tells us something, that we treat a minister of health who maintains something. We must question everything. Mm. What was Peter's, what was Peter's uh, summary from the interview? Did he have a message for the New Zealand public? Was there something he wanted to convey? Or do we have to wait to see the film? Maybe we just tease that, Sam. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, something that's shining through to me at the moment is um, you know, he thinks that we're in a very dangerous position. He wonders whether we'll, we'll ever see the other side. And I think it's so important for people to realise that there is another side. But that side is not, but, but that side has been branded with this propaganda term, misinformation. And unless people find ways to explore that side of it, then unfortunately there's a, there's, they're blind to it. They're, they're willfully blind to it. And who is it that talked about willful blindness, Jodie? What's her name? You know, this keeps coming up for me lately. Yes, Margaret Heffernan. Really good. Excellent YouTube presentations on willful blindness. Fantastic book. We might, add, we might add that underneath this interview, Jody. but the relevance of you talking about misinformation, and I picked up a very good qualification you, you alluded to, missing information. That's what we should term misinformation yeah. to really mean. It is what has been missing from the dialectic. But the relevance of this interview today on the back of Jacinda Ardern's valedictory speech and her new job, which is to sheet home, basically, this oppression of free speech. I cannot put this Christchurch call any other way than to say, if you do not agree with us, we will come after you and silence you. And that is something to be deeply worried about for, for me. I'd like your comments on each, if you're willing to go there. Who decides what's true? Who, you, how do we leave it to anyone, particularly somebody who's been in power during a time where so much legitimate information was censored from the public. I accept that there is a misinformation out there. It's a murky, murky world. For example, and this is entirely separate to anything that's included in the documentary, 
But things to do with QAnon, for example, I've got no idea. I've never looked at it. But I don't think it's necessarily credible. And it definitely should not be considered close at all to anything um, to do with what we're dealing with here. It's got nothing at all to do with it. But I watched in the last three years, particularly in the first year, that that realm of ideas was linked in with all of this. And they've got nothing to do with one another. It's very important to discern. Now, unfortunately for people that have not exercised their discernment, perhaps over the last three years, they've they're either they're perhaps too busy to, to look at the information and they do rely on the news for, for what's happening. And fair enough, you know, people are so busy and I kind of understand. But uh, that discernment has been missing. And so now we have this huge world of what has been termed misinformation, but they must have an inkling that within that whole all of information that they've not been able to look at, there is legitimate information that has been hidden from them. And this documentary picks out a good heap of it that was really to do with our COVID response here in New Zealand and filters out a lot of what that was mixed in with over the last two or three years. Now, when we have somebody who was in power during that time overseeing that generalization of, 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 uh, of rhetoric around information not to trust, how, how, do we, how do we know that those people who are deciding what is truth, how are we to trust that? going forward it needs to be up to each of us to decide it can't be up to somebody else if we are to truly to truly to discern what is truth then all of the information has to be out there and we need love journalists to to help us discern but uh a, a disinformation any kind of disinformation role just speaks to me of ministry of truth in george orwell's writings and beautifully said and it should be like a buffet of of ideas of perspectives and we are the adults in the room we have the choice to go up and say that perspective is the one i will choose to embrace whether you agree with it or not please allow differences of opinions jody what we did what we definitely saw over covid-19 was the silencing of expert communities but we also saw and this was my, you know, my research showed this, we don't actually have an institution in New Zealand where scientists are financially paid, they're in a secure position where, where they won't lose their job to look at um, the risk from the technologies that we put in place. So whether it's um, chemicals that EPA are looking for over or whether it's um, medicines and or, or it's junk food, we, we actually don't have an institution where scientists have block funding to do basic science research because we all know that the truth isn't, there's no one source of, one source of, source of truth. It is, truth is where we get lots of information and we put it together. That's why I don't write 
500 word essays I have to write 5,000 word essays because if you if you when you start to untangle what has really happened you start to understand well if the scientists weren't funded that were in those tag groups to actually go off separately if they were given the science to then analyze to to then say this is okay or if they were provided with a very narrow scope or terms of reference you didn't have those informational pathways so then the media going and saying well that's misinformation was totally unfounded because there was no scientist in New Zealand with the freedom so we didn't have the expert communities with the freedom to go outside of the of the political of the policy of the day so we need to understand that a wicked problem requires lots and lots of information to, 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 in order to navigate that wicked problem. And that's what we have with us today. And it is freedom for science, it's freedom for the media, and it's freedom for the public to ask questions. I mean, from a journalism perspective, the, the flip side of that, we don't have an independent funding for independent scientists. The flip side is we could have a lot of scientists. I know that uh, the Gates Foundation funds the science and medical faculties in Dunedin. A lot of scientists who are paid spout something, a particular line. We see this around the world. Could we say the same of our politicians? We hope not, and we don't have the proof, but there is that question mark hanging. You know, have there been lobby groups who've got to our politicians who have exerted some kind of pressure? Now, how can a former politician then come out and say, I will tell you what the truth is and what, what is not. It's so compromised, the system, is it not, Joe? It's a long-term culture. So we have a long-term medicalised culture where we default to medicine instead of classic public health norms and mores. That's mm. part of the problem. Sam, let's talk about that. The third in the story is this wonderful doctor. Tell us about Anne O'Reilly just before we finish, because I don't want to I don't want to say all of it, so people will watch the film, which is I, I highly recommend. But tell us, Anne, and about her standing in the community. She has helped so many people. Yeah, that's right. She, Dr. O'Reilly is somebody who I wish was my family GP. <laughs> I'd have her in a heartbeat. She's she's compassionate and softly spoken and shocked at what's gone on the last few years. She's been a GP for over 40 years and she upskilled halfway through into this realm of functional medicine or integrative medicine, which looks at the root cause of disease, which, I mean, that just sounds like, common sense to me but what she reveals part of what she reveals in the documentary is that that's not necessarily looked at as common sense within the medical realm she actually became quite disenfranchised with traditional medicine after studying functional medicine because traditional medicine relies so heavily on on uh on on applying pharmaceutical drugs to an illness that looks at the disease and treats the disease. But what Dr. O'Reilly does and many of her colleagues that she works with around New Zealand and the world is looks at what has caused that disease and how can we remedy it there, usually with nutrition, diet, lifestyle, management of stress and things like this. And, uh, and, and I'm not sure where it's been flipped, but um, this is looked at as alternative now. And treating illness is now looked at as the, the normal way of going about things with, with pharmaceutical drugs and things that come in a packet prescribed by your doctor. 
that's fine. Whichever way you go is fine. But what she is, look, she's become aware over the last 20 years of how medicine is steered in this one direction. And she looks at it with a, a, a broader perspective because of her training. And um, you find that in, in what she has to say in the documentary. She started asking questions early on. And in the end, she had to, similarly to Peter, after 40 years in her profession, she also walked away from her career in order to continue to speak out. That's what it came down to. Otherwise, she was facing huge legal dilemmas and fights with the medical council, et cetera, et cetera, simply for asking questions. And I... I think it's important for people to realize that these doctors who've been suspended for asking questions, suspension is such a heavy, uh, a heavy punishment for these doctors, which is normally reserved for, as Dr. O'Reilly says, things like manslaughter or fraud, giant um, abuse. Ab yeah, yeah, exactly. So these, these doctors have been met with a very heavy hand for, acting in advocacy for their patients, acting out of concern, trying to act ethically. And they've asked good questions once again, and those questions have gone unanswered. And those letters that New Zealand doctors speaking with, um, out with science are still available online and they're still very, very relevant and they continue their work. And again, they don't have a voice in the media. They have not been given at all the platform that their questions really demanded or or were worth. Um, so Anna O'Reilly uh, comes through as a representative of that organisation and uh, again she's very gentle and um, and and perhaps a, a new voice for people um, both who are familiar with this movement already and certainly for those who are not. I, I don't think any of us with critical thinking can speak highly enough of New Zealand doctors speaking out with science and what they've done, their courage, their uh, academic work, which is well-researched and properly presented, their continual uh, help to those who've been jab injured has been nothing short of extraordinary and with being reviled in mainstream media. Jody. What have you felt when you've seen the work of NZDSOS as somebody who's really familiar with good research and, and proper academic standards? Well, globally, we have seen this these groups of, of doctors um, arise. You know, we've got them, them in Canada, in Europe, in Australia, in America, you know, um, and this is because they have been excised out through the the rhetoric and the law and it's interesting because the New Zealand Medical Council is outside it's not a government sort of institution it's outside the OIA um, the Official Information Act and and yet we know for example we know that the the global association of New Zealand medical councils I'm fairly aware they're funded by the pharmaceutical industry and so we have this institution that's very unaccountable. It's all of a sudden changed all its policies around medicine. It's protecting medicine. I'm also aware that there, there are medical doctors with, with extensive nutritional expertise and um, training and, and studies 
that have, have said to the New Zealand Medical Council, well, we want to prescribe nutrients, nutrition, and the, the Medical Council sort of basically overrules them. And I really wonder what the position of the NZ Medical Council is and whether it's able to protect the health of, of New Zealanders. I, I question what they've done over this last time. I think they've lost their way um, and they're sort of like they're, they're ethically unfounded right now. So I'm very concerned about, about this institution that's actually meant to protect the public by stopping abuse of power by doctors has, has in, in, instead inverted that to abuse power. I really appreciate your courage saying that. And Sam, I will put uh, underneath this interview, an interview we did a while ago with Dr. Bruce Dooley, who was in your area. And you said, I don't know where this has come from. It looks as if it came from before World War I, there was an institution set up in America called the Federation of State Medical Boards. It's very secretive. Many doctors don't even know that all medical councils answer to the FSMB. And interestingly, after it was set up, a Rockefeller was on every medical school board. So it went from being a country which offered homeopathic treatments and naturopathic and, and food advice and the country doctor, you know, the family doctor, to this very institutionalized thing ruled by the Rockefellers. And it now looks like it's the enforcement arm of big pharmaceuticals. So we'll put that underneath here on the Federation of State Medical Boards. Mm. Sam, I partly say that too, not just because Bruce Dooley is such an excellent doctor and I know you know him, but I partly say that because I think there could be silenced two, silenced three, silenced yeah. four. Would you make yeah. more versions of this really important film? In a uh, way, I would love to see it become a series, but with these very <laughs> curated, thoughtful pieces. Mm, oh, absolutely. I'd love to do that. There were several moments during the making of it that I thought this could be a sequel, this could be a sequel. Um, deeper investigation, for example, into the suppression of early treatment is um, a theme that comes through um, that I'd love, I'd love to get into because from a research point of view, that was my, like my personal, what I saw as the smoking gun of the whole thing. Um, that's one option, but you're so right. It could, there could be two, three, four, five. It could continue. And now having been through this process, I'm pretty sure that I could do it at least in half the time um, because I've learned. And, um, and yeah, I've got an incredible team now who, um, who I can call on for their different exceptional skills. Um, and the photography, for example, and Silence was done by Tim Birkin, he's amazing, and, um, and he came up to Tauranga to, to um, interview Jodie, but we also got some beautiful New Zealand imagery in there too. There's, um, I'd like to stop you there. I, Tim, is his aesthetic is absolutely wonderful. It really yeah. is. I mean, as Kiwis, we toss around that word amazing, but it, it really is a wonderfully, um, beautifully shot film yeah. while being highly impactful in its content. Yeah. I thought it was international standard. Yeah. 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 I'm stunned actually. I'm I'm really proud. So that absolutely means that for me personally, I'd I'd love to to look forward and see what else perhaps comes through um in terms of documentary making um for, for me in the future. Storytelling. There's so many stories to be told and to tell them in a beautiful way is um is a real privilege and hopefully means that we can reach 
And can, so, I, yeah. can I emphasize that this, this young lady talks about in a beautiful way and she sounds quite esoteric, but actually the film is very logic, logical, it's very clear, it's very concise, um, it's beautifully referenced, the, the graphics are amazing. So this is a journalist that's working professionally and, at, you know, I think she's got a huge future. Again, it comes down to how do we monetize that? How do we ensure that she can actually do this job? So we do need people out there that perhaps have um, some money that will contribute and she's demonstrated that she's extremely ethical and that that what would be financing would be very um, carefully managed. So I think we have to look at the practicalities and we have to actually have to look at this um, journalist in front of us that's done a very good, very good and logical and clear-minded job. Beautifully said, and you just beat me to the gun. I was I was going to say, Sam, I haven't asked this, but could we please put up uh, an account and a contact for you mm. at the end of this interview? I was talking to a couple of multi-millionaire New Zealanders through the week, and to, to both of them I said, if you don't use your funds now to help those of us who are seeking to tell the truths, to, to wake up enough Kiwis to all come together to stand up to this tyranny that's being rolled out, you too will lose your money. You will lose your homes. You will lose your rights like the rest of us. And I and I mean that. These Kiwis who, who have are well-funded, please could you fund someone like Sam to do more of this work? Please, I beg of you. It is time now. And Sam, I, I just... I just welcome you to the national stage. People need to know your work, need to know you and need to support you. And I congratulate you deeply with what you've done. Thanks so much. Thank you both so much. It's a, truly an honour to be in, in this um, forum with the two of you because I admire, I admire you both. I think you're incredible women. Thank you. Well, back at you, Sam. A wonderful treat to talk to you both today. And I hope many other people Support Sam, give her interviews, including mainstream media. Kim Hill, here's a call to you. Get this woman on and give her an interview. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you both.